Welcome to the Urban Legends Hotline, where we investigate the mysterious tales of your hometowns and stories passed through the old lockered halls of your schools to get to the haunted heart of the urban legends that you grew up hearing and maybe even telling. Today we are covering the inbred cannibal pig people of Pig Hill. Hi Chelsea. The urban legend I am recording for you tonight is the legend of Pig Hill. In my hometown of Meadville, Pennsylvania, there was a place also called Radio Tower Hill. Uh, where the radio tower from the town could be seen. And it was a famous spot for teenagers to go and make out. And the first time I became aware of Pig Hill was when I was a young theater kid of maybe 14 or 15 years. And a boy that I was dating wanted to take me up to Pig Hill for the reasons that a person you are dating might take you there. And on the way, he started to tell me the urban legend And the story was that sometime early in Meadville's history, there were a series of fires that destroyed several buildings in the town. And there was a particular family in the town who were never charged with the fires, but were widely believed to have been the reason the fires occurred. And as a result of the court of popular opinion, they were shunned from the town. People wouldn't be involved with them or interact with them. And to the point where they moved up into the hills just outside of the town itself. And because they had no access to others in the town, they began to inbreed with one another. And Pig Hill is called its name because the way the story goes, and I feel like I'm still unpacking it uh, in adulthood, is that they continue to inbreed with one another until these mutant pig people were created, people who had warped or twisted faces like the faces of pigs. There may be other versions of this story out there. That is the version that I heard. And needless to say, it was a mistake on his part to tell me that story. Um, It was sort of a mood killer, and we did not stay up on Pig Hill long. So anyway... As I was reflecting on whether this was actually a story I heard or perhaps the stuff of my nightmares, uh, as was much of my dating life back then, I actually did a little bit of searching. And I can see that uh, not only is Pig Hill a thing, somebody wrote a book about it, and another person who happened to run in the theater circle I was in is involved in the production of a movie Uh, that I believe is happening right now. So, hi everyone. My name is Nancy Williams. I am the author of five novels, the latest of which is called Pig, inspired by the urban legends surrounding the pig people of Radio Tower Hill in my hometown of Meadville, Pennsylvania. The urban legend surrounding Pig Hill has been around for longer than I can remember. Just about everybody in the Meadville area knows about it and has some version of the story, none of which vary too much. I'm not even sure who I heard it from first. I feel like my older sister, maybe? This hill is called Radio Tower Hill, so named because, as you might expect, there are radio towers there for the local radio stations. 
As for the people themselves, legend has it that they are mutants, half human, half pig, and dangerous. Some say they live in underground warrens, and if you go up there at night, you might not make it out. In researching the book, which is, as, you, as I said, titled Pig, I asked a lot of people what they knew and got various versions of a similar tale. I visited the hill a few times while writing. It is unearthly quiet there. It doesn't have a good energy. I considered camping up there overnight, but decided against it. So the book came out in 2016 and is being made into a movie called Pig Hill. I hope you can check it out and I hope you enjoyed the story. Thanks. If you go to an American haunted house at Halloween, you will often be faced with a half man, half pig murderer swinging a butcher knife in a blood soaked apron. The implication being that you will soon be a slab of savory human meat. This little piggy went to market. Where are you going? <laughs> a pig man was one of the more frightening villains of American Horror Stories' Roanoke season, the inspiration coming straight from one version of our legend today. He started to see Don't things. He started to see ghosts. I, just one. The pig man. A man pig. A ghost with a, with a huge it pig was. head it's on it. an urban legend about a, a butcher from... In the slaughterhouse that is the 1974 Texas Chainsaw Massacre, our inbred cannibal killer, Leatherface, squeals like a pig to trick his victims. <laughs> And, fun fact, the actor who portrayed Leatherface in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3, Meadville local R.A. Mihailoff, will be starring as a pig person in the upcoming movie Pig Hill. In 1993, the sitcom Seinfeld offered America a pig man in a 1993 episode in which Kramer becomes obsessed with a hospital patient he accidentally walked in on. Hey, I just saw a pig man. A pig man! You know, he was sleeping and then he woke up and he looked at me and, and he made this horrible sound, this... A pig man. A pig man, half pig, half man. Yeah! The government has been experimenting with pigmen since the 50s. Oh, would you stop it? In a famous trial in 2015 over the murder of two former Marines, the perpetrator's defense called his psychiatrist to the stand, who told the jury that he believed the men to be, quote, pig assassins, hybrid pigs sent here to kill people. He began to feel, in his words, that pigs were taking over the earth. We can find more pig people all the way back in the 1896 early science fiction novel by H.G. Wells called The Island of Dr. Moreau, which featured a mad scientist attempting to create intelligent human-animal hybrids, including swine men and swine women. As we know from gruesome true crime stories, pigs have been used to dispose of murderers' victims, as they are literally able to consume almost all parts of a human body. 
Not only can they eat the flesh, but also almost all of the bones, save for the largest ones and the skull itself. In 2002, serial killer and hog farmer Robert Picton was arrested for the murder of 20 women, and as America learned, he had fed their remains to his pigs to hide the evidence. Other gruesome details revealed DNA of the murdered women found in processed meat on his farm. These people-eating pigs certainly have a precedent in American history as well. During the Civil War, it was not uncommon for feral pigs to come out from the woods and dig up the corpses of soldiers who had died in battle and were buried in shallow graves. When walking through the site of the Battle of Bull Run, a colonel wrote that he saw the brutalized corpses of, quote, Several Yankees partially rooted up by pigs. During the Battle of Shiloh in 1862, a soldier wrote that he had heard the frightening squealing of hogs who were, quote, quarreling over their carnival feast. Pigs were seen eating the amputated arms and legs that were left outside the makeshift hospitals on the battlefields. In fact, it may have been a common fear among the soldiers that they could be eaten alive by these feral pigs as they lay gravely injured all night, thought to be dead, but still barely alive. Most of these soldiers were teenagers, or just out of their teens, the same age of those who would eventually tell the tale of Pig Hill. Urban legends exist of cannibal clans with albinism in California and Pennsylvania, mutant cannibal melon heads in Ohio, Michigan, and Connecticut, and stories of mysterious man-eaters that roam the national parks, according to a recent viral TikTok tale, cannibalized yet again by American Horror Stories' insatiable creator Ryan Murphy. And this is only the beginning. The backwoods stereotype of inbred cannibals has produced horror films like Deliverance and The Hills Have Eyes, and you can learn all about these tropes and the harm they've caused in our episode called Rednecks. But for this episode, I want to focus a little bit more on the pig part. So for you... Dear listeners, we have rooted and snorted around the web and old newspapers for the strangest pig-related histories we could find. And as always, what we uncovered was weirder than I ever expected. So come along, little piggies, but beware. Instead of roast beef, this little piggy had you. Daddy? Daddy, tell me the piggy story again. This little piggy went to market. This little piggy stayed home. This little piggy had... The pigs are waiting for you. 
As is the case with most contemporary myths, we can look to several other stories that share common traits with the legend of Pig Hill. Deep in the very secluded eastern edge of the Florida Everglades, there lives a half-feral community of around 50 squallies, as they're known to Floridians, described as short people the size of a child, each with the snout of a pig, and each with a taste for human flesh. The reason these pig people exist is explained by locals in several different variations. A government science experiment gone horribly wrong, or like the monsters of Pig Hill, generations of inbreeding, or even as the result of ongoing bestiality with the wild hogs that roam the area. But these pig-faced cannibals don't always arrive in a family clan. Some are lonely boogeymen who haunt the deserted rural roads outside of town, often attacking teenagers who parked for a little heavy petting privacy. The pigman of Northfield, Vermont, is said to haunt a lover's lane known to locals as the Washbowl. A story circulated in the 1970s that a group of teenagers were hanging out and drinking beer there after attending a high school dance when they heard the nearby bushes begin to rustle and suddenly they saw what looked like a tall human covered in white hair sporting an unmistakable pig face. So they ditched the beer and ran screaming back down to the high school. In the halls of said high school, a backstory to the legend was born, a tale of a teenager named Sam Harris who disappeared in 1951 on the evening before Halloween to participate in Mischief Night, a carton of eggs tucked under his arm. When he wasn't home by the next morning, the town gathered to scour the area for the missing boy, but he was never found. Lovers laners have long claimed to have seen or even been attacked by this beast wielding an axe, a rotted pig head covering his face. Others believe that Sam grew a propensity for bestiality and fathered some human-pig hybrids that now lurk in the dark woods beyond the high school, who come to attack the students who dare to trespass. Similarly, the pigman of Texas's Bonnie Bay Bridge is said to reside as a hermit under or around the structure, attacking teens who park nearby, either wearing a pig's head over his own or with an unexplained pig-like countenance. Another bridge haunted by yet another pigman is in rural Hawkinsville, Georgia, and another in rural South Alabama, and yet another in rural Millington, Tennessee. But perhaps the most famous example of the pigman legend comes out of Angola, New York, where a much more detailed telling exists. 
Like the tales we talked about at length in our first Urban Legends Hotline episode about the ghost children of Munger Road, this legend is connected to a horrific train crash nicknamed the Angola Horror that took place in 1867. As the story goes, two teenage brothers named Henry and Loring collected some rail ties off a track to fix their fence, which led to a catastrophic train derailment, with most of the cars falling into the gorge below. Fearing negative publicity, the actions of the brothers were hidden by the town, and they returned to live on their run-down farm on Holland Road. Years later, Loring married a woman named Betsy Crabtree, whose parents had been cousins, and at 19, she gave birth to their son, Bill. Bill was born with frontonasal dysplasia, which meant that the two sides of his face were not fully connected. He had a split nose and widely separated eyes, giving him the distinct look, locals said, quite unkindly, of a pig. Growing up, the outcast Bill worked odd jobs to help out his destitute family, but his looks kept him unemployed, save for a stint working with a local butcher. There were also reports that Bill's unique face landed him a job with a traveling circus as a sideshow freak. It was rumored that he then married his first cousin, Mildred, giving birth to a son and two daughters who shared a similar pig-like face. Bill started to work for a local sanitation company near their long-term home on Holland Road, likely helping the legend come into being as he stalked around the dump wearing a hood, giving instructions to those disposing of their garbage in barely intelligible sentences. Eventually, the dump closed down, which meant not only that Bill lost his only source of income, but also that the area around his home became all but abandoned. This isolated spot became a perfect place for suburban teenagers to park their cars, to drink and make out, far from the purview of the local police. This angered poor Bill, and he decided to do something about it. He started by driving his old, rusty truck up behind the parked cars, intimidating them until they pulled off, giving them a glimpse of his poor sign features. When that didn't work, he got more extreme, leaving the severed heads of pigs on stakes as a warning to trespassers, and then replacing those heads with the heads of teenagers who dared to breach his borders. Or so the legend goes. There is virtually no evidence to support any of this. 
But don't worry, everybody. Our dear femmes are represented, too. Pig Lady Road in Hillsboro, New Jersey, is said to be haunted by the ghost of the pig-faced lady. The main version told about this isolated stretch of rural road is that a pig farmer's wife gave birth to a daughter who was disfigured in a way that resembled a hog, leading her cruel father to cut the head off one of his swines and force her to wear it over her face. After her mother's death, the girl killed her father with an axe and then went on to kill two teenage boys who left a pig head on her doorstep to make fun of her facial deformities. Legend has it that her ghost still stalks those who park on the secluded road, coming after them with the same axe. Looking back at the earlier freak shows of the 1800s, we will meet many pig-faced women of whom Charles Dickens claimed, quote, no fair was complete without one. It's certain that variations of the pig-faced woman toured through England and Ireland throughout the century, and we can assume that she was exported to the United States as well, either literally in the many touring freak shows or through stories passed on through the innumerable English and Irish immigrants who came to America around that time. But unlike our pig-faced man, Bill, the pig-faced woman was not actually a woman at all. She was a bear that had been shaved completely, that had been put into a wig and a dress, outfitted with fake breasts, with shoes attached to its back paws, and with white gloves attached to its front paws. Tied to a chair, the audience was allowed to ask yes or no questions, and the bear was poked with a stick in order to elicit answers in the form of grunts. The audience would then watch this pig-faced woman eat hungrily out of a silver trough. This sort of human-pig hybrid presented to a gullible audience may be ridiculous, but perhaps even more ridiculous was the early Puritans' fear of the true potential of such a monstrosity. More after this. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never frozen, ready to eat gourmet meals that are chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your 
schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now, back to the show. On February 14th, 1642, a planter by the name of John Wakeman went to the New Haven, Connecticut magistrates to make a truly strange but very serious accusation. He said that he had in his possession a prodigious monster, a stillborn piglet given birth to by a sow he had just purchased. He went on to describe the abomination like this. It had no hair on the whole body. The skin was very tender and of a reddish-white color like a child's. The head was most strange. It had but one eye in the middle of the face, and that large and open, like some blemished eye of a man. Over the eye, in the bottom of the forehead, which was like a child's, a thing of flesh grew forth and hung down. It was hollow, and like a man's instrument of generation. A nose, mouth, and chin deformed, but not much unlike a child's. The neck and ears also had such resemblance. John Wakeman was accusing a man of bestiality, what they called copulating with strange flesh, a capital sin in Puritan colonies, by claiming that he had fathered a human-piglet hybrid. His proof was that the prodigious monster looked suspiciously like a servant named George Spencer, who worked for the man who had sold him the sow. He claimed that his disfigured face matched that of the piglet. Quote, His deformed eye being beheld and compared together with the eye of the monster seemed to be as like the eye in the glass to the eye in the face. When the accusations started to fly, it's important to note that George Spencer was already known in town as a troublemaker, punished at one point for stealing goods in Boston and trying to escape his indentured servitude by fleeing to Virginia. 
Not only that, but George was guilty of not giving a fuck about the Christian God, openly telling people that the sermons of their famous minister, John Davenport, just didn't do it for him. He also told his fellow colonists that in the five years he had resided in New England, he had uttered not a single prayer, and that he only ever cracked open the Bible when his master forced him to by threat of punishment. He was not well-liked in the community, and his lowly status made him an easy target. When the official investigation began, George Spencer strongly denied the accusation, but the magistrates locked him up on suspicion after they took a look at the evidence. While imprisoned, the magistrate approached George and chastised him for his ungodly actions, but he would not admit to the crime. That is, until he was badgered with some unnerving Bible quotes about his abominable behavior and a warning that he better confess his sin lest he face the wrath of God. Likely knowing that repentance was a powerful Puritan path to avoid being hanged, he confessed that he had indeed laid with the pig in the biblical sense. But once he confessed, instead of gaining his freedom, they told him he would be put to death. So he flipped and then flipped back again, trying to find whatever formula he could to placate the outraged community and save his literal neck. But it was all to no avail. He was hanged two months after the birth of the piglet, and the sow, as if she were guilty too, was killed with a sword, a common practice with convictions of bestiality. Whether George Spencer indeed committed this crime or was pressured into making a false confession will never truly be known. But based on the bad evidence of the pig baby, this was officially the first recorded wrongful execution in Connecticut's history, as well as the very first recorded false confession in colonial America. Great start, boys. 10 out of 10. At this time, there was actually a full-blown, but now largely forgotten, moral panic over bestiality. A bit of a pre-Salem witch trials witch hunt. This one focused mainly on male servants. Almost all of those accused were poor teenage boys and young men without family ties in the area. Another well-documented case involved two more deformed piglets that people thought looked suspiciously like the servant of another household. His name, and you're not gonna believe it, was Thomas Hogg. He denied the charge fervently, but he still sat in prison for months awaiting trial, which is when things got super hella weird, just like our modern era in which those hunting for alleged perverts often appear to be the weird perverts themselves. 
The prosecution brought him to the sow in question and made him fondle her until, quote, immediately there appeared a working lust in the sow. But when he was forced to do the same thing to a second pig, she had no reaction. Even fucking weirder, Thomas Hogg had a hernia that forced him to wear a steel truss, which kept cutting his pants wide open, and his scrotum became sort of well-known in the general community, leading someone to say that one of the piglet's eyes looked like his scrotum, which I think is bad science, even for Puritans. Thomas never confessed, and thus was never hanged, but the scarlet letter of the pig-fucking accusation followed him for life. This bestiality moral panic, which extended to animals beyond pigs, got so dramatic that women took on all of the milking duties, and if a man even wanted to enter a barn, he better have both a really good excuse and he better go along with the chaperone. But after a while, all men were suspect, even those who came from richer backgrounds. And as the moral panic began to affect the more privileged of the communities, just like magic, it slowly died out. Imagine that. Now, According to the dorky-ass map I made, all the pig people I could find reside in the northeast and southeast, and none any farther west than Texas, almost all near the earliest cities in colonial American history. This felt important to me, and as I got deep into my American pig history rabbit hole, or rather hog hole, I uncovered quite a strange scene in many mid-1800s cityscapes. And then let's talk a moment about pork, ham, bacon, pepperoni. These are some of the things that the scripture tells us we should not eat. God knows what's best for us. And back in the Bible days, the pig was considered unclean. Pigs have always carried a stigma of being unclean, due in large part to the way the animals are interpreted through religion, which of course is largely determined by the wealthy who control the messaging. But in some places, like ancient Rome, where pigs subsisted on natural foods like grain and nuts, their consumption was not prohibited by religious texts, nor frowned upon by moralists. Since pigs are omnivores, they will eat pretty much anything, including garbage and human waste, which they have been witnessed doing since at least 3000 BC. This led to the customary spiritual rejection of these animals as impure in the religions that came out of the Middle East. Regardless of the pig's bad rep, those who could not afford other kinds of clean meat have long been consuming both domesticated and feral hogs, which were often plentiful and free, which led to their offensive association with the lowest classes in many different cultures. 
This was certainly true in colonial America, where pigs, not native to the country, were imported by Spanish and European colonizers in the 15 and 1600s in the southeast and on the east coast. Lacking proper fencing, these animals were allowed to roam freely on what was referred to as the open range, fattening themselves on roots and acorns until they were collected back by dogs as winter approached. But many of these pigs disappeared into the woods, never to return again, transforming from domesticated to feral. This is the farm. Peaceful. Calm. But now, the only chance to save the farm is for one little pig to go to the city. You're just a little pig in the big city. What can you possibly do? What can anyone do? Destiny has changed his mission. As the Industrial Revolution grew cities like New York, Philadelphia, and Pittsburgh, the larger, compact populations created more and more garbage, and they had no real centralized system to dispose of this waste. But luckily, those feral pigs traveled in from the forests to do what they do best, eat literally anything, becoming the first garbage collectors in urban American history. But while this was extremely beneficial, these helpful hogs still got a seriously bad reputation. They stopped traffic, they caused carriage accidents by frightening horses, and caused injury to people on the street who got in their way. There was even a court case attempting to rid New York City of its pigs, which accused the hogs of harming children and, quote, compelling ladies to view swine copulating in public. Oh, my word. But these city hogs continued to provide a source of food for those in need. They could literally snatch a swine off the streets and feed their family for days. When the first New York police force was officially created in 1845, their attention soon fell on the city swine, who were wrongfully accused of spreading cholera. But more so than the fear of sickness, it was the rich, as well as the growing suburban middle class, that wanted nothing to do with these stinky, garbage-eating pests that muddied up their newly pristine city streets and made them look like peasants themselves. The government of Philadelphia passed laws banning pig farms, or piggeries as they called them, as well as other forms of animal agriculture from the ever-expanding city limits. In New York in 1859, almost 90 policemen were sent to destroy the piggeries using guns, daggers, and pickaxes, confiscating thousands of pigs from already destitute families and going as far as to ruin their land by sprinkling lime all over it. 
by the 1890s when what the newspapers called the war over swine really kicked up, police continued to raid and ruin these businesses, providing no viable financial path for them to recover, while at the same time continuing to drive the feral pigs out of the cities, destroying what was essentially the first food safety net of the urban poor. By the late 1910s, Philadelphia, located not far from Pig Hill's Meadville, had its own war on pigs when a mini battalion of cops and firefighters was sent by the city to shut down a local man's hog farm. Patrick Short and his two sons were not willing to surrender their pigs, their livelihood, to these uniformed men, and they stood at the gate holding shotguns on their shoulders. But the pigs, I mean the police, had their own guns at the ready and were finally able to wrest their hogs away from them. Three other nearby families met the same fate that day, the authorities burning their pig pens to the ground. In nearby New York City in 1920, an already established pig farm was forced to close because the New York City Supreme Court passed new zoning laws that such a stinky business could not exist within a thousand feet of a personal residence or highway. Developers were salivating over this potentially lucrative land, and to them it couldn't have mattered less that the family that owned the farm had lived there for decades. They were standing in the way of suburban progress. As the cannibalistic suburbs crept closer, the same thing happened to most all livestock farmers, orchestrated by more and more real estate developers and the local governments who lived in their pockets, along with big animal agriculture businesses looking to consolidate their power. As the nation continued to industrialize, the open range was closed, with fences sprouting across the eastern and southern U.S., which meant no more wandering hogs. As pigs were taken from the hands of family farms and moved into factory farms, the conditions they were made to live in worsened significantly and grew to be a horror movie all its own. Ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle called pigs the animals most like people, those we know may be as intelligent as a human child, those who are hardly different from a family's beloved dog. It's easy to imagine that we could harbor some subconscious guilt for the way these hidden creatures suffer, so turning them monstrous can help assuage that guilt. We think of the pigs eating the bodies of Civil War soldiers and of murder victims. It's easy to imagine a man-eating monster with a taste for revenge. More after this. Hey, podcast listener. 
Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in bigger than ever for season nine. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today. And now, back to the show. The study of folklore teaches us that these contemporary myths have something to teach us about the boundaries of whatever society is telling the stories. Often, they are cautionary tales to keep children and teenagers safe, as simple as, don't go into the woods or the boogeyman will get you. Or in this case, don't go make out on Pig Hill because you might suffer the consequences of going all the way, an axe murderer stepping in to stop the action. But if we dig deeper into the specifics of each legend, other boundaries, other prejudices, and other more complicated messages start to appear. Obviously, dear listeners, there is a lot to unpack here, so let's break it down into parts, starting with the human-pig hybrid. The Puritans believed that the act of bestiality lowered a human being into the animal world, a world considered sinful by its very nature. And not only that, but it put something human into the animal. But in 1835, two centuries after the bestiality moral panic, a New York surgeon named Dr. Richard Kissam successfully transplanted the cornea of a pig into a young man who, for a short time, actually regained his sight. Lacking the kind of scientific knowledge we have today, this practice soon proved ineffective, but the similarities between pig and human bodies continued to be studied. Since the 1960s, pig heart valves have been used as an acceptable replacement for those in need of a transplant. And more recently, scientific advances have shown that pig embryos injected with human stem cells are actually able to grow hybrid organs that contained those human cells. The idea would be to use the bodies of pigs to grow healthy organs for those waiting for transplants, which could help people with diabetes, Parkinson's, and liver failure. But, like the Puritans, this idea of mixing people with animals still really freaks us out. Many in the bioethics field fear what could happen if scientists continue to create more advanced chimera, as animal hybrids are referred to. 
The unnerving potential to transplant human brain cells into those of pigs and other animals, allowing them to think and feel like we do, was enough of a thought experiment that it led bioethicist Hank Greenlee of Stanford to claim that the practice could, quote, denigrate human dignity and blur the line between what is human and what is not, especially if you believe that we were created in the image of God. That word chimera from Greek mythology is meant to elicit fear, but the scientists argue they are trying to solve a problem and save lives, not create a monster. The National Institute of Health was so concerned, in fact, that in 2015, they refused to fund any experiments that put human stem cells into the embryos of animals, forcing scientists to seek outside foundation-based funding. There was even a bill proposed that would imprison anyone conducting this research with fines up to a million dollars and 10 years behind bars. look at the archetype of the inbred cannibal clan. As mentioned, we talked at length about this trope in our Rednecks episode, which was originally used against the remote and destitute hillbillies of Appalachia, who have long been branded as particularly prone to inbreeding and genetic mutation, though they experienced no significant levels of this activity when compared to other places. But this narrative was used by the elite to blame their lowly status and extreme poverty on their own moral failings. It was the incest that kept them impoverished, that ruined their genes. It had nothing to do with the brutal capitalist mining machine that was exploiting them and then abandoning them. The progressive era obsession with eugenics, with breeding well-off white human beings so perfectly as to create a utopian society, meant those who had disabilities were seen as inferior. Many were sterilized, along with thousands of others who didn't fit this vision. And so, it seems, we made monsters of these people, blood-drinking clans of murderous, immoral outcasts, perhaps as some kind of cautionary tale, or as some kind of unconscious or conscious justification for the treatment these people received from the urban upper and middle class. If we return for a moment to the European tale of the pig-faced woman, represented by those shaved bears in the freak show history, we can see that the tale stretches back all the way to the 1630s, where it seemed to appear almost simultaneously in England, France, and Holland. 
More than two centuries later, Charles Dickens would say, In every age, I suppose, there has been a pig-faced lady. The story was reported as fact throughout the 1700s and eventually created what is known as the Pig Lady Scare of 1814 and 1815. In England at the time, people truly believed that a wealthy, pig-faced woman was living on an isolated estate. And of course, the tabloids offered details told by those who allegedly made her acquaintance. This legend also varies by time and place, but usually holds the same heart. A pregnant lady of noble blood encounters a beggar woman and her children, and when they ask for help, she not only turns them away, but also insults the family by calling her children a group of piglets. Well, bitch, guess what? That beggar woman was, of course, a witch who puts a curse on that womb. And a few months later, the noble woman gives birth to a healthy baby girl with the face of a pig. As she grows older, it's discovered that the child can only speak in grunts and snorts, only eating from a specially made silver trough. This is a cautionary tale that targets not the lowly, but those who look down on them, those who use the imagery of the dirty pig to punish those who have nothing, or perhaps to convince themselves of their own goodness by making monsters of the poor. You guys, I just saw Pigman. Those look like pig hoof prints. <gasps> What was that in the tree? I'm done. Run. We should be here anymore. We, don't, we shouldn't be here at all. Now listen, you know that I love a good urban legend with all my heart, and yet I am here breaking them down into tinier and tinier pieces, trying to pin a beautiful butterfly down to study its wings rather than letting it fly free. Here I go again, attributing meaning to something as ridiculous as cannibal pig people, something that could potentially hold no meaning beyond a good way to get some attention around a crackling campfire. But I do believe they each have a great deal to tell us. But what exactly that is? Well, you could spend your life trying to decode just that, and you may never be any closer than when you started. Or maybe, just maybe, you will hit on the pig-valved heart of something greater. When we look at a tale like Pig Hill, like all the pig men and pig women we have heard about today, we can see a pattern of our typical unmarried teenage petting partiers attacked by a hybrid monster, a being or beings that represent what happens when we stray from our shared moral agreements, when we break the boundaries that must never be crossed bestiality, inbreeding, 
cannibalism. These are things we can almost all agree are okay to encourage the youth not to participate in. But it's the symbolism of the story, the particulars of each boogeyman, that can show us something deeper about America and about ourselves. Over the course of colonized American history, those who have been forced to live in rural poverty have been labeled inhuman, more animal than man, pushed to the far margins of our world to turn feral in the dark forests we are taught to be afraid of. The sacrificial teenagers who dare leave the structured safety of the suburbs driving their parents' cars are met with roving bands of what has been rejected, out now for revenge, ready to literally eat the rich, bones and all. This was American Hysteria's Urban Legend Hotline. If you have an urban legend you'd like us to investigate, you can head to AmericanHysteria.com and leave us a message. A special thanks to our listener, Aaron Hipple, for sharing their urban legend. You can find them on Instagram. Their personal handle is beautiful underscore rule breaking underscore moth. And you can find their therapy consulting education business Instagram at wildness underscore and underscore wisdom. And thank you to Nancy Williams for sharing her journey writing Pig. Find her work at nlwbooks.com. If you want to get more of our show, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash American Hysteria, where you'll get ad-free early episodes and you'll get access to Hysteria Home Companion, a talk show featuring producer Miranda and I, where we tell you the stories that were cut from the episode. For example, our compliment to the Jackass series was to talk all about the fires allegedly caused by Beavis and Butthead. You'll also get access to our close friends Instagram, where you can follow along with the making of the episodes, as well as some more personal content for me as well. That's patreon.com slash American Hysteria. Another really great thing you can do for our show that only takes a second is to leave us a five-star review on the app of your choice. It's truly a great way to help out our show, and you can do it right now. American Hysteria is written, produced, and hosted by me, pig person Chelsea Weber-Smith. Our sound designer is Clear Camo Studios. Our research assistant is Riley Swadelius-Smith. And our producer and editor is Miranda Zickler. Thanks, as always, for listening. And here at American Hysteria, we're dedicated to better revering these beautiful and holy creatures. Have a great day.